Good morning, this is Stacy McConnell. I'm chair of the Estate Department at Lamb Macerlain, which is a law firm in Westchester, Pennsylvania, and I'm here today with Stephanie Calagridis. Good morning, Stacy. Um, it's so nice to be able to work with you doing estate planning at Lamb Macerlain. Um, yes, Stephanie, and I think today we're going to talk about um, the, some of the events that really should trigger either setting up an initial estate plan or reviewing your existing one. No, Stacy, I find it really amazing how many people have not taken the time to do their estate planning. That's right. I see the same thing as well, and it can really be a big mistake in your life and in your family's life. You know, and people think of it being just their wills, but really the will is just one of the elements. I tell my clients all the time that really the thing that they absolutely must have is a general power of attorney and a health care directive. These are two documents that affect their lifetime well-being. Right, and, and as anyone will tell you, you're more likely to become disabled than die. And these documents are when you're living and you're disabled or incapacitated, and they help you manage your finances and, and help someone help you with your health decisions during lifetime. Well, Stacy, what documents do you usually do for your clients when they just want a basic estate plan? Well, everyone needs a will. I think they know that. But they also need this health care power of attorney and a durable general financial power of attorney. Well, what about beneficiary designations? I find that a lot of times they don't think about the effect that their beneficiary designation has on their full estate plan. For example, if they have a retirement plan, they have to tell their provider what happens when they die. Right. And whatever they say to the employer or to their IRA provider, on those accounts, that's where that account is going, and it does has nothing to do with what their will says, so it must be coordinated with their will and the rest of their estate plan. People sometimes are surprised to find out that they can't put in their will, when I die, I want my retirement plan to go to my sister. Right. That needs to be done with the form, with the employer, or with your IRA provider. Now, so let's talk about the uh, health care, I'm sorry, the financial power of attorney. Um, I think it's the most important document for all of our clients. It allows someone else to handle every aspect of your financial life during your lifetime, especially in the event that you're not able to handle it yourself. Yes, that includes paying your bills, um, making investment decisions, signing your income tax returns, all, all things that had to be done even when you're not able to do it. Well, that's right. And like I said, that is the, personally, that's the most important document that a client can do. Sometimes these documents have some health care provisions, but I personally like to have a full separate document to appoint somebody who can make health care decisions for me in the event I'm not able to make them or, or my client's not able to make them on their own. I agree, because often that's a different person than, than the one that's making financial decisions. And you want to be able to put living will provisions in there, meaning if you're permanently unconscious and terminally ill, you indicate those treatments that you would not want to have done to you in that, uh, in that state. You know, the state of Pennsylvania has um, a form that a lot of people try to use. But what happens is that form many times doesn't really reflect what the client's specific interests are. I mean, we have different clients with different religious backgrounds, with different tolerances, that they want to have a voice in how their care is done in the, at the end of their life. Right. The general form provided by Pennsylvania may be good for some, but for others, it's really not going to cover those issues. That's right. I agree. Well, how about that will? Everybody talks about their will. 
So in our wills, we have to appoint an executor. That's a person who's going to be in control of everything when you die to make sure that the money gets to the right person. Right. That's a big responsibility. They're going to have to deal with your home and the personal property in your home and finish up your income taxes, pay your creditors, pay for your funeral. It's a big responsibility. It's very important that they choose that person wisely. What are the other things that you include in your wills? Um, any any specific provisions about bequests to charity would go in there or to specific individuals or how you want the real estate to be handled would all be, you know, included in, in the will provisions. Well, that's really mm-hmm. important, Stacy. Mm-hmm. You know, that brings up another topic, talking about your beneficiaries under your will. What about if, what if you want to leave some money to your child or a grandchild or another beneficiary that has special needs mm-hmm. or is just under the age of 18. Mm-hmm. Then you really need to create a trust under your will that you don't want a, a child who's 14 years old to be receiving a check or well, even a 17-year-old or a special needs child. It could really re- mess up the benefits they're receiving. Well, first of all, mm-hmm. the child under the age of 18 cannot receive the money. Right. If you don't have a trust under your will, your executor is going to have to go to court and have a court-appointed guardian to take control of the minor's money. Mm -hmm. This is something that most of my clients don't want to have happen. They don't really want the court to be involved in deciding how much is distributed to a child at any point. No, that's expensive, and they may not pick the person that you would want to have in charge of that money for the child. You know, Stacey, unfortunately in this day and age, we're seeing more and more children and grandchildren with substance abuse problems. Mm -hmm. And that's where a trust is important for them. Mm -hmm. Because you need to have somebody looking over their money. You want to have money available maybe to helpfully get them into treatment and maybe to have a recovery. But if you give it to them outright, they won't be able, it actually may be to their detriment. Yes, that could really be a life or death decision um, to have that happen. So planning is really important when you have a child or grandchild with substance abuse issues. And then special needs, that's a whole other field. Yes, a disabled child, we see more and more um, clients with, say, clients uh, with beneficiaries on the autism spectrum, and they really need special planning for those individuals. Yes, and a special needs trust is a total different animal from just a general trust for children. For example, you want to make sure that the funds that are in the trust are dispersed in a way that will not disqualify your grandchild or grandchild from receiving the government benefits that you've worked so hard or their families worked so hard for them to qualify for. Correct, right. These are really important discussions that, you know, uh, it's important for our clients to discuss with us, you know, the absolute nature and the problems that are within the family so that we can best advise them on how to address um, their family concerns uh, through their will, through their beneficiary designations. Yes, and coordinating those two things, the will and the beneficiary designation. We see people making big mistakes on their own when they try to do that themselves. That's that's right. And getting really good advice from an attorney who does concentrate their practice in estate planning is really important, especially when you have children with special needs or have special situations within your family that can be addressed with the trust. Right, right. Mm -hmm. And another special situation that comes up is a second marriage. And that is something um, where we really see a lot of conflict 
if someone hasn't done the proper planning. Yeah, you don't want your children to be adverse to your second wife. There's a lot of ways that we can address those issues with the use of trust because you you may want to provide for your wife. Mm-hmm. If usually during their lifetime, but then you want to make sure that ultimately what's left in the trust will pass on to your children and not the spouse's family. The other thing people are really surprised about is that they can't disinherit a spouse unless they have either a prenuptial agreement where they've wa- the spouse has waived their right to an inheritance. And so if you don't include them in the in the will to some extent, they can go to the court and demand and be entitled to a percentage of your estate. Right, sort of undoing the whole estate plan that you think you've put in place. So you really need good advice to coordinate that. But when you have a spouse, you also have to um, make sure that uh, you look at your estate planning uh, if there's a significant change in your spouse's health. You know, you may want to make provisions for them, put things in trust for them, because maybe they can no longer handle the finances. Right, and you may have named them in a role in your estate plan as your executor or as the agent under your power of attorney, and you'll need to change that because they're unable to perform those roles for you as well. Right, and sometimes you may not have a contingent or an alternate beneficiary in there, or they may think that they're able to handle the finances, and then you're going to have conflict um, at a death. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. The other time that you do need to look at this is um, at a death of the spouse. You know, many assets, such as joint assets, automatically would go to the surviving spouse. But there are those assets that may be in the deceased's name alone. Their will may have to be probated, and you do have to start have some reporting requirements. Yes, but you, you'll probably have that per living spouse be named as executor if they have a proper will, and they'll be able to handle the deceased spouse's assets and file an inheritance tax return. There won't be tax due at that point if it's going to, going to the spouse, but a return will be required. You know, the other thing that people miss sometimes is the fact that uh, you hear a lot in the newspapers uh, about this $11.5 million exemption on the federal level, and that seems like such a lot of money. And most, many people do not qualify or have, think they have to worry about it. But that exemption might go down. And in order to utilize a deceased spouse exemption, you're going to have to file a return to preserve it. And without doing that, you may be precluded um, and find yourself in a tax position at a second death if you haven't taken the appropriate steps. Right, because during the second, after one is gone, the other's assets might continue to appreciate and grow and have a tax effect at their death that could have been avoided by proper planning at the first death. You know, Stacy, we're talking about all these things that um, require a review of your estate plan, but you know what? Sometimes these reviews are a 15-minute telephone call. I mean, sometimes Mm -hmm. they need a full revision Mm -hmm. of a plan, but these don't always have to be um, long and drawn-out sessions. No, I'll have a client call and say this and that has happened, and sometimes we need to get there and make some changes, but sometimes we can walk through it on the phone, and it's a very minor um, discussion. A lot of times we try to anticipate changes in Mm -hmm. the future, and our documents actually may be addressing them already, Mm -hmm. their concerns, and they just didn't realize it. Yes. Mm -hmm. Like the the birth of a new child. Some people call up and say, oh, I've had a new child, another child, I have to change my will. And I'll say, well, let's look at the will. And it really, right now, says all your children. It doesn't name a specific child. And so you're really in good shape. We didn't have to make a change in that will. Mm -hmm. You know, Stace, as our, our client's age... Um, their living situations may change. Their um, 
their relationship with their children and their grandchildren may change. And this sometimes puts them in uh, positions where either they may want to be making a disproportionate gift to a child or they may be being pressured mm -hmm. into making a disproportionate gift to one child over the others. Have you yeah, seen that? I have, particularly when maybe one child is living with the parent and caring for the parent. And in one case, the child, the parent really wants to provide more for that child who's provided that care. And the other side of that, sometimes that child starts putting very strong influence on the parent to change the distribution the estate in a way that the parent doesn't want to do, but they feel a bit held hostage by that child. You know, our courts, unfortunately, are replete with cases where um, a child has exerted undue influence on their parent and have their parents sign documents transferring the house to them, putting them on as a joint owner of bank accounts, putting them as the beneficiary of, of other uh, retirement assets. And all of a sudden, this child is getting a very large, a very disproportionate share of the estate, which may or may not have been what the parent actually intended. Right, and those, that's, I would say, that's a large proportion of the cases that end up in court, and it's a lot of legal fees and a lot of heartache, unfortunately, but it's a common scenario that we see when clients come to us as a parent is failing. Yeah. You know, the powers of attorney that we talked about earlier, we said they are tremendously powerful documents, and they allow your agent, that's the person you appoint, to do anything that you could have done. Many times, people use the power of attorneys in order to make changes to um, our clients' assets um, in a way that is um, inappropriate. Yes, they have to remember that when they're using that power of attorney, they have a fiduciary obligation to the parent, whoever's named them as agent. And sometimes people go a little astray over over time in that role, and that's when they get themselves in trouble. You know, people have to remember, too, that when they're a fiduciary, they have that duty. And that duty goes, yes, to the, the person who named them, but it also goes to the review by the court. So other beneficiaries, other family members, would be able to challenge their actions. So they don't really get a get-out-of-jail-free card because they have a power of attorney. They have to remember they're also subject to court review. Yeah, they can be called in there and need to provide every transaction they made for the parent from the day that they took on the job till the parent's death, and they need to be prepared to provide that information to the court. When I advise a, a client who's acting as an agent for, uh, for someone else, I have them, you have to have separate accounts. You don't commingle your assets. You need to, like you said, keep track, a spreadsheet, a um, some sort of an accounting of every penny that comes in and every penny that goes out. The more uh, documentation that they have, the less likely that they will have to go to court to defend their actions because it will be evident how the money was used. Right, right. Mm -hmm. And as we talk about these things, you know, it's not always that the, uh, the person who's the, um, the agent is, is trying to do something wrong. I mean, mm -hmm. I had a situation where um, one, of my, uh, one of my clients uh, was going to the bank to be put on their parents' account as a power of attorney. That means it's still the parents' money, but they would have basically sign-in authority and be able to do the things that would require for their parents' well-being. Well, unfortunately, the bank 
customer service representative continues advise them not to be on this power of attorney but to make themselves a joint owner of the account well that's a whole different thing than being the power of attorney yeah the bank employees many of them are really not properly trained to handle these situations and they'll advise you give the wrong advice to the client and they'll end up with a co-owner of the account, which is a child or another individual's. And what happens is when they die, that account passes to the co-owner, which is not what they intended. They only wanted another person to be able to help them sign their checks. For my client, fortunately, they picked up the phone and they called me. And they Mm -hmm. said again, are you sure I'm not supposed to be a joint owner on this account? And then I reminded them of what it meant to be a joint owner versus the power of attorney. And because they didn't want any problems with their siblings, they insisted on being put on as a power of attorney, and they were able to go forward. Mm-hmm. I think they were right, because if this had been in joint names, I know the siblings would not have been very happy. Mm-hmm. That's another one of the court bottles we see, where a joint account has been created, and the question is, what was there really intent to create a joint account or not? and it creates a family fight after the death of the um, parent. Another thing that can really mess up an estate plan, I mean, after my clients walk out of the meeting with me, I like to make sure that their documents are in order, all of their beneficiary designations are in order, so that everything works smoothly. But sometimes clients are approached by well-meaning investment advisors or others who aren't aware of their overall estate plan to put things called TODs, or transfer on death indications, on large investment accounts. Yes, and those accounts will then transfer on death to the individual's name there outside of the provisions of the will. And it can really skew the, dist- uh, the distribution of the estate in a way that the, the individual did not intend at all when they put that TOD designation on the account. You know, in Pennsylvania, um, Pennsylvania has an inheritance tax of 4.5% when assets go to children, 12 to siblings, and 15 per, for every other non-charitable beneficiary, uh, zero to spouses, excuse me. Mm-hmm. And the, if you have a TOD account, people think that the money is going to go to them automatically. But in reality, what happens, you have to get a inheritance tax release form from the Department of Revenue. So here, where they may have thought they were doing something that would expedite the distribution of their the estate, it actually prolongs the distribution of the money. Yes, they won't be able to get that without getting that certificate done. Um, and, and another example I see where parents transfer things during lifetime, thinking to make things easier, can, can go haywire. I just had the situation. Dad put his own home in his daughter's name who was 40 years old, little did he know that she would then predecease him. And now he is going to pay inheritance tax to get his own house back. And it's just because he thought he was going to make things easier, and in fact it's going to make things costlier for him. And the other thing that people have to consider when Mm -hmm. they're wanting to make things joint, especially their house, which is a prime example, Mm -hmm. is that when you put someone as a joint owner, they get what's called a transfer basis. They have the same basis in the house as as you have, the, the one who's making the gift, where if they have it go through the estate, they get what's called a stepped-up basis. Now, many times the kids aren't living in the house, so they don't have an exemption from capital gains. So they end up paying capital gains tax on the, 
on the transfer of the house, where it would have been a lot cheaper if they just waited and paid the uh, inheritance tax. Right, that rate is is higher than the inheritance tax rate, particularly when you've owned the house for a long time and and have a quite low basis on it compared to what you're going to sell it for. Because you're going to have both federal income tax and state income tax on that sale Mm -hmm. of the house eventually down the road. Mm -hmm. Yeah. You know, another thing that's in the overall scope of estate planning is is our retirement plans. More and more people hold most of their wealth outside of the person residence in a retirement plan. Mm -hmm. There's real special rules with retirement planning, and you need to make sure that you're aware of them and, again, make sure those beneficiary designations are correct. But even the individual needs to look at what are called the required minimum distributions. This is where, at the age of 70 and a half, where the participant must start taking out distributions from their retirement plans. There's a lot of things that we can do at that time to consolidate or to make the estate, um, the administration simpler. One of the recommendations is to put, to consolidate all your retirement plans into one or maybe two accounts instead instead of having them in multiple accounts. That'll make it easier when you're trying to calculate what your required minimum distribution is. You don't have to look at four or five, six different accounts to see how much has to come out of each one. By combining them, it'll be much easier to make that calculation. One of the other advantages um, of planning at the age of 70 or half, or after you have to have your required minimum distributions, um, is that you can do charitable giving with these required minimum distributions by having your plan provider pay money to the charity directly from the plan. The advantage of this, it never comes into your adjusted gross income on your income tax return, and it may allow you to qualify for certain other deductions on your returns that would not be available if you had brought it into your um, into your own assets and then made a charitable deduction from that. Right, and it's a great benefit to the charity. You can do this to the extent of $100,000 a year at this point, so it's a very uh, big advantage if you have an interest in making charitable gifts and you've reached the age of 70 and a half. That's right. We have clients living so much longer, they may... You know, they may have very large uh, um, retirement accounts, and they're living 20, 30 years after that age, and there's a lot of opportunity there. A lot of planning opportunities. Mm -hmm. Talking about retirement plans, did you see what came out today? It looks that it will certainly pass that we will no longer be able to take advantage of stretch distributions. Let me define that for a minute because that's Mm -hmm. a term that many people aren't familiar with. When a beneficiary of your retirement plan is someone other than your spouse, up until now, they have been able to use their life expectancy, their age, to calculate how much has to come out each year. They don't have the option to wait until they're 17 to have to take the distributions. This means that for a child, the distributions that must come out are very, very tiny because a 10-year-old probably has an 80-year life expectancy. So we're looking at 1 80th of the plan would have to come out each year. Well, we have new rules that are coming effective. It looks like they're going to be effective January 1st, 2020. Yes, and once the new rules come in place, those payments must be paid within 10 years. So you can't stretch that out over 60, 70, 80 years with a young beneficiary like we used to be able to do. And this is, we're talking about income tax planning in this case. This means that whole retirement plan is going to be subject to income tax over a 10-year period. Now, 
one of the things I know that I'm grappling with is being able to contact my clients to get this information in front of them. Many times when we had minors as the beneficiaries, we would put the retirement plan assets, make them payable to what's called a conduit trust, which would say the required minimum distribution would be distributed to the child each year. If the parents were dead, that number was probably woefully inadequate. They'll need a lot more uh, to be able to maintain it, be maintained. So it was a very uh, easy thing for us to do. Now with this new tax law, we're not sure exactly how those um, instructions are going to be interpreted. We may need to go back and amend these trusts. Yes, because you may not want your 10-year-old to get a, a tenth of your retirement account in, in one year. That may be much more than is needed to provide for that younger person. Um, at the age um, that they are. Yeah, one mm -hmm. of the things you know that the individual client is going to have to look at mm -hmm. is the effect of um, or the cost, the income tax cost of having these retirement plans held, these minimum distributions held within the trust and pay income tax at the trust rate or having some or all of it distributed to a beneficiary that may be at a much lower tax level. Yes, and we have to divide, design for the clients the right flexibility in their plan to address this so that the trustee can make these important decisions when the time comes in the tax situation and the asset position, you know, situation that exists at that time. Yeah, this is a major change to the tax laws. Yes, it really is. It really is. And these are one of the things we try to get in front of our clients and let them know that, you know, please call us and we can help you decide whether or not you have a, an issue that needs to be addressed. Mm -hmm. But it's also important, you know, for the clients to keep abreast of what's going on um, and report it in the media and then to feel comfortable to come back to us and say, is this an issue that I have to worry about? Yes, we don't mind at all taking a call from a client and just briefly looking at the plan they have in place and say, oh, yes, we need to revisit it, oh, or, oh, no, it's going to be fine for you in spite of this change. That's a very easy you know, call to respond to, and it's such a good idea to just check in. You know, Stacy, I know both you and mm -hmm. I, we have relationships with our clients. Mm -hmm. We have long, ongoing relationships. This isn't just come in, let us draft a will for you, and you go away. You know, we want to be there as their advisors, as things change in their life, as they come upon different situations, birth mm -hmm. of a child, marriage, remarriage, change of jobs, death of a spouse, all the different elements and times that they should be uh, looking at their estate plans. Yes, we, we have clients that make the common mistake of making a will when they have their first child and not really looking at it again for 25 years. And many, many events have happened in that time when they really should have come back and talked to us, at least had a, a small conversation about whether any changes are needed. You know, Stacy, funny mm -hmm. thing is mm -hmm. my will for the longest time had guardians for my children mm -hmm. well after the times they needed it. Mm -hmm. Now, that's a change that doesn't need to be made. No. But when we're talking about something like these conduit trusts, we may need to make them. And it's important that the clients, that everyone know that they have a continual relationship with their lawyer and to seek their advice on a regular basis. Yeah, and if they don't feel like you have a continual relationship with that lawyer, you may want to think about who you're working with. And if you don't feel that comfort level, you may want to reconsider because you want to feel that comfort level. I know, Stacy. You know, we're always available to review other pe people's estate planning documents that are in existence. And I have no problem telling them that they are still great in the, con the situation, that they are still effective and don't need to be changed. 
Right. Even people move in from another state, we can look at them and say, you know, these are fine as they are, or let me make some suggestions. Um, it doesn't necessarily mean that you need to redo this, spend a lot of money um, to make sure that it's what your family needs now. Sometimes they need tweaks, and sometimes they need full revisions. Right. Exactly. Thank you for listening today. And if you have any questions, please feel free to call myself or Stacy at, at Lamb Macrolane. Mac-